I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today, Manoj Diaz. Manoj Diaz is the co-founder of the meditation and breathwork app Open, which you may have seen me talking about on Instagram. I am doing their 31-day meditation and breathwork challenge this January, and it has been incredible. The consistency and the quality and the depth and the magic of those meditations is really something. And it's such a beautiful ritual that I have added to my life thanks to Open. If you haven't joined the challenge yet, or maybe this is the first time you're hearing about it, make sure you click the link in the show notes to get access to Open for the month of January for free and experience what it has to offer for yourself. I had been wanting to recommit to daily meditation practice for a long time. And for me, the way to it was actually in December when I signed up for WonderMed, which is a ketamine prescription treatment program that involved daily meditation as part of the protocol. That really got me in the zone of daily connection to something bigger than me. And then when January meditation challenge with open came up, I was just all in because I really wanted a structure that would hold me in continuing to show up daily, even if it's just a few minutes a day. Because for me, I know that when I show up daily, there's such a big, profound felt difference to how I feel within and also how I show up in the world. So if you're called and if you want to experience it, check out open. I will link to it in the show notes, or if you want to just type in the link bit.ly bit.ly slash meditate with Xenia. This particular link, if you sign up through it, it will be a way to support this podcast. So if you do end up signing up, please make sure you use my link. So who is Manoj? Manoj is born and raised in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, and he's a speaker, teacher, and a friend. Once tethered to a life of self-management instead of self-awareness, he now intimately understands what it means to be healed from the inside out. And in this podcast, he shares exactly what led him there. In 2015, Manoj founded A-Space, Australia's first multidisciplinary drop-in meditation studio. And then in 2020, A-Space was acquired by Open, a modern meditation organization based in California, where Manoj is a co-founder. Manoj knows that meditation and mindfulness are too vast and wise for any one person to own. So he has learned from some of the most respected teachers of our time and has studied at the Nalanda Institute of Contemplative Sciences in New York City. He has married the best of ancient wisdom and contemporary science to bring the power of awareness, compassion, and wisdom to organizations from Netflix to Google, Slack, and others. Manoj has also written a book called Still Together, and he is just such a pleasant presence, such a grounded presence to be around. And I really, really enjoy the way that he guides meditation and breath work. So if you are just registering on Open, or maybe you're already on there, you might already be familiar with his voice without realizing it. And if you're not, make sure you seek out his practices because they are truly beautiful and have offered me so much. Here's Manoj Diaz. Enjoy this conversation.
Manoj, welcome to my podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you live. I feel like you've been with me every morning. I've been doing the open meditation challenge. And as a result, my dog is also part of it. And now my husband is a part of it. And now we're here and we're speaking live. So welcome to Web8. And I'm so excited to explore you, your life and what you do in this space. Uh, thank you, Senya. I, I really appreciate that. It's been uh, it's been a joy to see everyone posting about the the new challenge and, and the app. So I did see some of your posts. So thank you. So before we begin, I wanted to tell you a fun fact of something that we have in common that's quite unusual. Mm. In the eighties, when we both were five, our families both moved to Australia. But based on your accent, you stayed, and I did not. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Where did you move to? We moved from Russia, where I'm originally from, to Canberra because my dad used to be a diplomat. Oh, and so okay. we spent five years there, first five years of my life. And then I spent 15 years in Russia. And now this summer I'll be ce- celebrating 15 years in America. So I will have been here as long as Russia. And now it's <laughs> extremely debatable where I'm from. Yeah, I, I also tend to have an, an accent, actually, that is a little bit ambiguous because some people tend to ask me if I'm English. Some ask me if I'm South African. Um, and it's not a very thick, strong Australian accent. No offense to Australians, but <laughs> all of my <laughs> friends, their accents are, are very, very strong. And, and I'm, always, uh, I'm always amazed whenever I meet an Australian here in L.A. and, and the accent is really, really thick. Somehow my mm-hmm. accent thicker to, to match them it's a marrying i think it's a partly an empath thing what we do we kind of just mm-hmm. start marrying accents especially if you have a good hearing but um <laughs> i've listened to some podcast interviews with you and there's some territories that i have not heard you go and my mm-hmm. intention for this conversation is to explore some of the more unexplored territories and for this conversation to be of service and of highest good to everybody who ends up being called to listen to it, as well as to me and you. And let's have a let's have a good time. Oh, I love that. And particularly the place where I would love us to go is this intersection of technology and spirituality and kind of the combination of the two worlds and where they merge, because in your life experience at this time, it's been so fascinating how you took the practice of meditation and mindfulness and your Instagram bio to anybody who hasn't seen your Instagram profile says scaling compassion. I'd love to Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what that means to you as well, but it's so fascinating to me because we often see people who go all the way meditation route, become Buddhists or meditation teachers, spiritual teachers. Then we see lots of people going into tech and being entrepreneurs and expressing their genius and their talents through entrepreneurship, particularly through technology. And when the two come together, I find it to be such an interesting place. So maybe we start there. When in, when did meditation come into your life? That's one side of it. And then when did technology and social media come into your life? And then maybe you can take us on a journey of at what point do you remember them overlapping to lead you mm-hmm. where you are today? Oh, that's such a wonderful question to to begin with. Um, Yeah, I mean, 
for for anyone that's heard my story and how I came to meditation, you know, it's not a very original story at all. It uh, it started with a level of suffering. <laughs> In my case, you know, anxiety, panic attacks, um, addiction, all different all different ailments that I. Um, that I seem to have come into contact with while I was working in marketing and advertising. And so I had a, a very brief career. It was almost nine years actually in the corporate world and in Australia. And at that point was unaware to what I was experiencing. And looking back, it was, again, people didn't talk about anxiety or even mental health, you know, 10, 16 years ago now, like they, they do now. And so uh, what I was experiencing, I really wasn't familiar with and included heart palpitations, hands getting sweaty, this constant feeling of, of being on edge. And uh, it culminated in a panic attack. And that panic attack culminated in uh, me really taking two years out of work, trying to get healthy and, and trying to get well. And it wasn't by design that I took those, that time off. It was literally, I, I couldn't work. I was, I was pretty sick. And uh, it was meditation and, and it was yoga that really helped me grapple with my mind, understand what had happened and, and really put me back in a place of being able to, to heal what I, what I went through. And I tell people this, that it's, it's not necessarily the practice that, that healed uh, me and got me into a place where I am now. It's the understanding that came from the practice. So in, in meditation, it wasn't like I just meditated to be calm and all of a sudden I was here. It was, no, it was actually investigating why I was going through what I was going through, developing a level of compassion for my experience, um, understanding the, the nature of, of human suffering, understanding the nature of the human mind. And all of that gave me a context for what my experience was. And that really was, was the healing. It wasn't necessarily just showing up and closing my eyes and feeling calm. It's understanding why all of this happened to you that offered you healing. And if you're open to it, I would love to see what some of that is. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the first thing was that when I was going through what I was going through, you know, and specifically the anxiety and then the depression and then the insomnia, the, the narrative that I created in my own mind was that there's something wrong with me. Like I, I, I am the only person in my friend group. I am the only person maybe even in the world that is experiencing what I'm experiencing. And when we begin to, to look at the mind, when we begin to understand the mind, we start to understand that suffering is universal. Uh, almost every single one of us will suffer in our lifetime to, to varying degrees, if not the same degree at, at some point. And uh, when I was going through the experience, I was isolating from people. I was cultivating a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, um, all because I thought there was something very defunct with me and there was something completely hideous with me. And then taking a, a broader view of, of my experience and recognizing that it's not so personal, um, it created a separation between me and the experience that I was going through in that moment. I realized I didn't have to be identified with the anxiety. I didn't have to be uh, identified with the, the depression or the addiction. It was something momentarily that I was experiencing. And then, you know, in, in a lot of Buddhist thought, we, we explore impermanence and we explore how things change and how things are always in a constant state of flux. And that also gave me a lot of solace because I realized that I'm not always going to be 
in this particular place that I was at that time. And that also has the capacity to change and morph. And that context was was really useful and really helpful and allowed me to uh, experience the anxiety without being completely thrown uh, into different universes by the, the suffering that I was going through when I was anxious. And it allowed me to, yeah, it allowed me to get well, it allowed me to get healthy. And it wasn't just the meditation, of course, it was the understanding of it, but it was also starting to look at uh, my, my decision-making, uh, what sort of what sort of decisions can I make that will lead me towards happiness? And what decisions do I make that lead me to uh, the opposite of that? So when it came to things like food, when it came to things like hanging around with people that weren't good for me, when it came to alcohol and drugs, um, mindfulness, meditation, having a, a clear mind really allowed me to, to understand the consequences of my decision. Hmm. There's so much that is coming up in terms of how I can see from my own experience with the app being that sort of anchor and that mirror for people moving through their own suffering mm -hmm. to, to find this reminder that it's okay. And it's not, it's not you, it's something you're moving through, but it's not you. And it doesn't mean anything about you. Um, yeah. and we'll get a little bit more into the app later, but I appreciate this context of how this showed up in your life and offered this pathway to healing and now you're you're scaling it. The scaling compassion in your Instagram bio is starting to make sense and come alive for me. So thank you for explaining it. Oh, you're welcome. And yeah, I mean, you you asked me, I think initially, where the intersection of, of technology really met with social media and, and with spirituality. And you know, I I come from a marketing sort of design background, so I had that sensibility within me. Um, I was really drawn to beautiful things, good design, art culture that was something that was really deeply ingrained in my body and I think from a very early point when I was um, when I was just teaching actually I didn't have any companies at that point I was I was just teaching I was acutely aware of a the addictive quality of, of social media and how at that point you know this is almost 20 years ago how uh, it seemed to be the the, the quantity of, of how much you used to post would would define how you know successful you were with the algorithm back then and it always felt very um it, it didn't really resonate with me i i always have had a philosophy of uh quality over quantity and only put beautiful things out there into the world and so um yeah i think that the worlds eventually met where good design mindful design with tech uh began through social media um, and then many, many years later, you know, my intersection with my other two co-founders and, and Open kind of began. But uh, it was really the belief that I, I think there was a space for spirituality to get um, a different marketing campaign. Um, and I joke around that, you know, for the last 2,500 years, meditation has had the worst marketing campaign ever. <laughs> we, we tend to think of it as something that is, uh, inaccessible for a lot of us, right? You have to go into the mountains. You have to be very quiet. You have to shave your head. You have to look a certain way. You have to have a certain diet. Um, and that just isn't a reality uh, in, in modern day Western culture. And um, there is a space for good design to be able to invite people into, into practices that they might've felt unfamiliar with. You know, the same way, I think about you know Michael Jordan and the Jordan brand and when the shoe came out 
was watching a documentary on how um, kids just started wearing these these Jordan shoes like in the streets because it spoke to them. There was something about it and, and it got people to move. It got people to exercise. It got people to play basketball. And I think the same way, if we are mindful with our, with our design, if we have a sensibility around that, an ethos, a certain intention, it can really draw new people to, to the practice. Yeah, that's kind of a, a little bit of a backstory around where, where my worlds really intersect. A hundred percent. I watched that documentary and I just watched the Shaq series. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. It's so good. You've watched it? I have. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. My dog's name is Shaq and my husband named it and he kind of pulled me into that world. So I'm exploring a whole new world and and language and understanding of really pop culture and business and drive. And it's so inspiring. But what I want to acknowledge and point to is open is so beautiful and everything about your own personal website and everything you put out on social media, there's such level of, like you said, you don't post anything that's not beautiful and it's really felt and it feels really refreshing. And I feel like when there's that level of commitment to art and design and beauty, it leaves so much space for what's essential to, to be. So I have a deep appreciation of just the level of thought you've put into the app and everything you do from a design perspective. And thank you for putting the effort into rebranding meditation because it was time. Yeah, no, it wasn't. You know, I, I can't take the credit for all the design at Open. We have an incredible team of of really smart people. Um, but you're right, you know, there there is a, it is time for more people to have access to these practices. And I think for, for many different reasons, there have been barriers previously from finances to socioeconomic reasons to representation of teachers and you know the diversity of teachers Um, and it'll continue to evolve we'll begin to change the language in how we communicate these techniques and these messages and there'll be younger people and it's just it's really exciting because um, even for me when i first began teaching i felt quite restricted i felt like i had to look a certain way and you know all of my teachers were in their 60s and 70s um, they were mainly white teachers that had studied in India and, and they were essentially interpreting the messages in their way and delivering it to a culture that didn't really look like me largely, you know. And so in our classes now at Open, it's a very diverse mix of, of students and that's really fantastic. And it's humbling to see that, you know, there's an, a 17-year-old in my class and then there's like a, a 65-year-old in my class and we're doing this amazing practice and then we're talking about it and then we're listening to music. Um, and it just feels like it's, it's a real evolution of uh, where mindfulness began to, to where it is now and where it's heading. Yeah, and as you say that, you are somebody who is of the lineage where this comes from and yet you had those white teachers with long beards looking spiritual and you thought you needed to look like that um, <laughs> when it, they studied under people who looked like you. Um, yeah it's also just a byproduct of growing up in a country like australia Mm -hmm. you know where um, at that time it wasn't very diverse and you know it was a largely white population so it's not um it it just is the way it it is and you know these practices have been around for a long time and they continue to thrive in eastern countries Um, but for people from the east it's hard to see the newer version of that being represented in popular wellness culture. And, you know, there's probably a handful of 
South Asian or even Southeast Asian uh, meditation teachers that I know that are in the popular conversation around wellness. Um, they still be dominated by by different ethnicities. So yeah, it's 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 nice to be able to evolve this practice, but also keep a, a sense of authenticity to it as well. Mm-hmm. I want to know a little bit more about the journey from teacher to entrepreneur. But before we go there, I would love to explore your heritage a little bit more. When you were five, you moved and you were growing up in Australia. Um, do you identify with being Southeast Asian? And if so, what about you um, feels connected to your ancestry and your traditions? Tell me a little bit about more of the cultural and religious context of what makes you you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really an interesting conversation because uh, recently I found out I'm, I'm part Ethiopian, <laughs> and that was a really uh, wild um, realization. And the irony of that was, you know, I was hanging out with my friends and we were going out places, and people would come and speak to me in in like Ethiopian, oh, wow. and I just wouldn't understand what they were saying. I didn't know what language it was, and then by a very strange set of circumstances, I ended up doing a 23 in me and it kind of came back and, and it confirmed that. But, um, you know, I know very little of that culture and, and I don't necessarily identify with it considering I, I just really learned about it. But a lot of my, a lot of my connection to my spirituality, um, it comes from Sri Lanka. It comes from growing up around um, temples, um, being surrounded by monks and, and nuns. Um, Sri Lanka is a very rich Buddhist country, and so it's it's very uh, it's permeated in in every level of of society there. And so uh, some of my earliest memories were monks coming to our house. Um, they they were doing what we call danes, which is like offerings where they would meditate with a group of people. You would honor the people that have passed away. Um, then you would you know, cultivate dane, which is like generosity. So you would serve the monks, and I remember serving. When I was maybe six or seven years old, I would go and take food to the the little monks, the baby monks, you know, and they would be like, you know, eight or nine. And wow. it was always this real curiosity that I had with spirituality. And I didn't really know what that connection was at a young age. It wasn't like I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm Buddhist and this is what it is. But there was, I think, a, an intrinsic knowing that there was something beyond just my material existence. There was something else maybe it was a, a belief that there was something bigger than us maybe it was god maybe it was consciousness maybe it was oneness like this at that point i didn't really know how to identify it but i always had um something inside of me that felt like it was connected to something bigger and so um it, i lost touch with with buddhism for many years growing up in australia you know we didn't have access to temples and and the community like we did in sri lanka but when I became sick and, and finding my way to this particular studio one day, uh, the teacher that I met was Sri Lankan, ironically, and he was an ex-Buddhist monk. And I think that was part of the connection that I had to him. It was like a, a little bit of um, a little bit of remembering of, of home. And um, I dived back into the practice of Buddhism with him and, and studied every day for, I think it was about eight years every day I was with him. We would go on retreats together. We would do holidays together. Um, I would live at his house periodically, teach at his studio periodically. And it became, it became very clear to me after a while that there's, there's the philosophy of Buddhism, which is very much a lifestyle. Um, you know, it's not religious at all. It's a set of 
a set of ethics that one could live by that are pretty universal, that aren't uh, dogmatic, that isn't dualistic in any way. And then depending on how deep you want to get into that philosophy, there is the religious connotations and the religious practices. And so, um, yeah, they're, they're just two ways that you can kind of frame the, the philosophy and practice and religion of, of Buddhism. Uh, I found myself vacillating between both um, from, from time to time. And, um, you know, these days ethics are, are a big part of how I live my life. Uh, not because I think that I'm going to go to a, a hell or I'm going to be reborn as something like an ant or anything like that, because I know if there is a, a certain way that I will live, uh, I won't cause harm to other people and I will feel better. Like it feels better to be kind and generous and empathetic and compassionate and present than the opposite of that, you know, which is to, to be greedy and to steal and to lie. So it's just more a lifestyle for my well-being at this place, at this point where I feel like if I can follow these guidelines and I'll have a pretty, pretty happy, healthy life. Was there a moment in which you got the confirmation that there is the force bigger than you? Oh, I love that question. Um, yeah, I think there was, it was a moment where I was at my lowest point with, with my being sick. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to use the word, you know, suicidal ideation, but there was a point where I was like, I don't think I'm going to get through this. Like, I, I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to get over what I'm getting through because uh, I didn't feel like I had anyone I could speak to. I developed an addiction to prescription medication. Uh, my mind was kind of spiraling at a certain point. And I remember late one night, a friend sent me a message it must have been at like 3 a.m. or something like that. And he was a friend that was visiting from L.A. And he's like, oh, you should go and see my teacher. And, uh, yeah, I remember just Googling him, not knowing much about him. And in my mind, I was like, I, I pray <laughs> that this guy can fix me because mm -hmm. uh, I had tried so many different things to, to get well. And then the next day, I messaged him and I said, these are all my problems. And it was like a whole page in an email where I was like, this is what I'm struggling with. And, uh, and he just said, I've been waiting for you. Come on Thursday. And um, I assumed my friend had said something. That's why he said it. Um, but it turns out he hadn't. And so um, when I went to his class and I saw my teacher, it was one of those moments where I, I haven't, I don't have many of these moments where it just feels like it's something out of a twilight zone where you're looking at someone you're like, Oh, I know you like, where do I know you from? I've met this person before. And, um, and then just having this moment in the class where I had an inner voice saying, this is going to change your life. Just come every day. This is going to change your life. Come every day. And maybe it was in, in retrospect, when I look back at that moment that I realized like that was something that I can't really explain. You know, my, my very pragmatic um, <laughs> mind can't really explain something that truly in the moment was, was very magical and it was um, hard, to, hard to fathom. Mm. The secret events that really led me to where I am. Mm. What has this inner voice recently been directing you to do? What feels the most present in terms of directive from that field of oneness? 
at the moment, it's just really listen to my body. Um, and that's been like a journey that I've been on the last three years where, um, you know, like the first portion of my life, I call it my first act when I was in, in the corporate world and, and working. Um, I existed very much in my mind where I was just at the mercy of thoughts and emotions and anxiety and other people, what they wanted and, and impressing people. And it was a very disembodied uh, time in my life. Um, the healing really began when I dropped out of the mind and into the body. But somewhere along the way, you know, like you still get pulled into that space. You still get pulled into, uh, you should be doing this. You should be doing that and take this opportunity, take that opportunity. And, you know, I'm, I am a co-founder of a tech startup. So we have, <laughs> we have KPIs, we have goals, we have investors. And um, if I'm not grounded and rooted, I can, again, be disembodied and go into a space of the mind. And that's not a bad thing, actually. It just, it depends how you want to live your life. And for some people living through that space is incredible and it suits them. But as a meditation teacher, uh, I, I, I find it difficult to be in that space all the time where I'm always cognitively away from the feeling and, and the, the sensing part of my being, which exists underneath my chin. So mm. me to be the teacher that I want to be and for me to be the, the boyfriend that I have to be, the father that I have to be, I feel like it's always a, it's a, it's a dance and it's a balance between the head and the heart. And so, um, yeah, the, the lesson I keep being told is to really just check in. Like, are you, are you working so hard that you're not sleeping and you're, you're punishing your body? And if that's the case, then slow down. And that's, you know, I'm sure people can uh, empathize with that is when you find a passion that ends up becoming your career or your job, you're, you're willing to go to really great lengths to, to make it a success and to make it, um, to make it fruitful because you're, you're living from a place of service at that point. And it doesn't, mm -hmm. it feels like there's an extra motivation there, but at the same time, it can, it can be quite harmful to your to your health and to your well-being, and it's happened to me many times where I've burnt out. So I need to keep listening and trusting that voice that's telling me to slow down. That I don't need to, I don't need to do everything that my mind is telling me to do. I can observe it and I can just trust. Yes, I feel you and hear you so much. I'm going through the same message right now. Like my body's really begging me to deeply rest. I'm just coming back from a trip to Turkey where I, my spiritual assignment for the trip was to reunite my family for the four, first time in four years. And that meant some real serious miracles taking place, bureaucracy and my nephew getting his passport, his dad agreeing him to go, like just so many things. And so I didn't know if it would happen up until the night before it happened while I was there. And so mm -hmm. I was holding so much space for it. I wasn't really sleeping I wasn't getting any rest. And now my body's just sleeping 12 to 15 hours a day and kind of catching up on it. But the message is like, girl, rest, trust yourself. We know it's the new year and you want to create and be out there and do things. But first, really rest and listen. There's no need to push or rush. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's quite challenging and, and difficult and also rebellious to, to move against the grain of culture. 
you know, if if you are a, an entrepreneur, if you are a creator, if you are someone uh, that's trying to do something big in the world, there is a pace that sometimes uh, is expected of you. And oftentimes our bodies can't move at that pace. I mean, not for a long time, not for a, a long, sustainable time. Maybe we can do periods. And I think that's really my big learning and lesson is that for periods I can grind, I can hustle. And then when I'm resting, I really need to rest. And this doesn't mean resting on the couch, watching TV and being on my phone. It's like actually just unplugging completely and, and you know, sleeping for days on end or binging on food and whatever, whatever, you know, uh, whatever supports you in that moment is, mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the outside world clock is saying, you know, with the new year, new you kind of programming in our culture, I think mm-hmm. that's where I'm kind of getting these subconscious messages of, okay, the year has changed, go create things. It's time. But truly mm-hmm. when I tune into that body clock, it's like, no, we're still resting. We're still, we're still integrating 2022 and it's fine. I really appreciate this reminder to slow down and I send it out to everybody out there who's listening to it and needed this reassurance that it's okay. It's okay to rest. Mm-hmm. It's okay to integrate. It's okay Absolutely. to slow down. Absolutely. And I would love to explore, you know, with you becoming a mindfulness and meditation teacher, you could have chosen the path of leading retreats and doing one-on-one mentorship and coaching with people and teaching in studios, but you chose to go down the entrepreneurship path and start a tech company and partner up with other people to do this. What led you there and what made you say yes and what have you been learning on this path so far? Wow. Uh, it was it definitely wasn't a, a conscious decision. Uh, part of it was was luck. Part of it was you know divine intervention. Uh, part of it was also really trusting your inner voice, you know, an intuition or your gut. Um, but part of it is also knowing what your strengths are and and what your weaknesses are. Um, for context, I had a, a studio in in 2015 that I launched. Um, it was called A Space. It was Australia's first drop in meditation studio. I had that for a few years and, you know, 2019, it, it became really apparent to me that uh, as, a, as a solo entrepreneur, like I couldn't keep, I couldn't keep this sustainable. I would either have to, to raise um, some capital and launch a bunch of studios or um, I would have to kind of pivot in some way, shape or form. Um, I also, my girlfriend at the time was living in New York and I fell in love with New York and I was like, okay, I think, I, I think I want to be here. Like there was something in me that was really calling me to New York at that point. So um, I was fundraising. I started fundraising in, in uh, New York in 2019 and found some incredible investors and some new partners and was all set to launch an app in, in New York. And the, the original idea was that I believed people really wanted wisdom I believe that you know there are so many practices that are out there in the world, so many techniques. But what I had really uh, learned was that a path and a almost like a prescription on how to live <laughs> was was really what transformed me. And there were so many different places uh, that you could get such pathways, you know, like the, the Buddhist philosophy is one, but then there's like the, the Jude, Judo Christian philosophy. Then there's 
uh, art, there's philosophy, there's books. You know, the School of Life does something incredible like this. You know, Alain Dubaton has um, essentially created a, a way to live referencing art and, and literature. And I thought, okay, well, what about something like that? then mixed with practice and, and community. And so that was the idea. Um, but in 2020, right, as I was packing everything up in, in Australia, COVID hit and, you know, for nine months, I couldn't come back to the US. And at that point, the investors wanted to hold off. Uh, my partners weren't ready to, because they didn't know what was going to really happen with the world at that point. And everyone was based in New York. So New York was hit the, the, the hardest at that point. So um, that idea kind of, fell through and um for a few months I, I was writing my book at that point for a few months i was just focusing on that and and had no real idea what i was going to do uh, but i then got a, a job offer to join uh i won't mention the name a uh a connected fitness platform based out of new york they were fairly big and doing very well at the time and um that was to become just a teacher come and teach meditation and at the same time, I got introduced to um, Ride, who is the CEO of Open. And Open had gone through a round of friends and family um, that had the vision to launch studios all around the US and, and globally, and then connecting people through a, a digital platform. And they were still in its infancy, but the, the vision was big. And um, I came on initially as an advisor. I was just helping them. Uh, recruit, helping them put together a, a content strategy. And then it became really obvious very early on that me and Ride really enjoyed working together. And, and Peter, who was our CTO, the three of us had a, a real bond, a real connection. And it kind of dawned on me at that point that these two are much smarter than I am when it comes to the world of business and, and technology. Um, I, I know where my strengths are and it's in it's in having an intuition around this industry and, and content. And I had a fairly big network of, of teachers too. So um, it really felt like a bit of a no-brainer at that point that I should you know, merge with, with Open. And so my company got acquired uh, by Open and then I moved to the West Coast in LA and I had no intention of moving there. And um, that was really the beginning of, of um, Open. And I think I was the third or fourth employee at that point, um, a third or fourth person that joined the company. And um, the whole company moved from San Francisco to LA. And here we are. You talk about intuition in business. How do you connect to it? Do you have a ritual or a specific way how you practice listening to it as you make business decisions? And how do you communicate it to your co-founders? Are they open to it? Uh, it's always a negotiation, I think, with um, with anyone, whether it's a business partner or whether it's a romantic partner. Uh, intuition is very hard to communicate because it's only really you that are feeling it. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes it's completely... A lot of times. A lot of times it doesn't make any sense. And so I think that the challenge is to, to find common ground. The challenge is to be a good negotiator someone that can communicate really effectively and someone that can really inspire people to believe in in something sometimes that feels very left field and um and truthfully sometimes i get my way and sometimes i don't and again i think that's part of um part of partnership is that uh, it's always a dance and, and you always uh end up having to discuss things as a team 
but you know that the your question around how do we listen to it and it's just constantly coming back to the body for me personally it's it's coming back to okay how does this feel like when i envision this particular initiative or when i envision this pivot what does it feel like in the body like do i get lit up do i get excited is there not do i feel apprehensive is there a lot of thoughts and it's um for me it's not making rash decisions it's actually sitting on it for a little while considering it and then speaking to people that are much smarter than i am and getting their opinion and ultimately trusting what i have to what's coming through me and and standing by it are there particular times you notice that that voice is at its loudest yeah i think at its loudest is when i'm in front of people for me personally like i I never plan a class. I never plan a talk or a presentation. Um, I think I, I'm not very good at remembering things <laughs> like like presentations. So like I tend to go into an environment. I look at who's there. I look at, okay, what is it that they need right now and how can I communicate it in a way that feels most resonant for them? And it's, and it's just trusting that at that moment, what I have to say is, is important. You know, I used to have tremendous stage fright and, and anxiety before public speaking. I'm sure a lot of people have that. Um, but it was, it really all changed for me when I started uh, giving more and more and just realizing that I'm here for a reason. I'm about to speak for a reason. And I have no attachment to what happens after I, I deliver it. Uh, my girlfriend's an artist and she always says that you know, my work is not my work after I, I complete it. It's no longer mine. And I think about that a lot when I when I give these talks or presentations is that it's no longer mine. It's now out there in the world for people to interpret it, to receive. And um, that, that relinquishing of the attachment has felt very freeing. Mm. Is it the same way with the meditations and practices in the app? Or are those a little more scripted? I would love to know if you have any rituals around creating those and bringing those? Yeah, I think there's there's a group of us that really sit together each month and we talk about what is it that we're trying to achieve this month. You know, then we go ahead and we and we develop the the scripts as a, as a group as a team. Uh, but for me, it's always we're rooting these experiences in a philosophy and um, in a tried and true technique. So you know, nothing is created by us per se like we don't just say hey this sounds like a great new technique let's use it it's it has its roots in science or it has its roots in in philosophy and it's been tried and tested the the aspect that we develop together and um, it's a very small team is like how can we communicate the power of this through the wisdom component and so you know we have a, a vision of open sourcing wisdom so it's not just coming through buddhist philosophy there's a lot of scientific research that we integrate into it. There's stoic philosophy, positive psychology, CBT. Um, and we try to, to take from all of these different traditions and lineages and practices and, and deliver it in a way where it hits um, someone exactly where they are in life. Well, it hit me and my dog pretty hard this morning as we were practicing <laughs> today's challenge. And... <laughs> You know, I was thinking about why does this really work? Why does this app work so well? And mm. I've tried many different apps. I did a meditation teacher training before the apps mm. existed or before I knew they existed. I've gone to the mountaintops and I've gone to the ashrams. Like I've tried different things, but it's been hard for me to have something that sticks. And mm. 
with other different apps, probably best not to bring up names, but there was one that I really like that I've mentioned on this podcast, but anybody essentially can upload their own meditation or breath work on there. And as a result, mm. it's super inconsistent. So sometimes I'll be in the space and I just want to go there and I want to be held in it and guided. And I turn something on and the music feels super off or the voice of the teacher. And so that inconsistency would slowly make me stray away from the app because you just, it's like a lottery. You never know what you're going to get. And coming back to the same meditations never felt like the path I wanted to take because I really enjoy connecting to different energies and different teachers. So that's one thing I've really enjoyed about Open, the consistency of the quality, the space that the teachers hold, the music. Oh my gosh, <laughs> boy, the team and you have done with the music selections. Sometimes that alone just really takes me into a really deep state. And then I can't let go of it the whole day. It's really beautiful. And I think why it also works is because it's like this dedicated space. For example, right now I'm doing the January 31 day challenge. And normally, let's say I'm scrolling on TikTok or Instagram or watching something inspiring. There'll be something that hits me and maybe I'll even write it down in my, in my journal um, or like save the post on Instagram for later. But because I'm in the mode of consuming and not in the mode of just sitting and going within, it doesn't actually ever go as deep. But because mm -hmm. when I know that I'm, when I'm opening the app, I am creating this sacred ritual space that is just for me to connect to something deep within beyond the outside world, just that alone, that intention of showing up makes such a profound difference. Yeah. And I think that's really, it speaks to the power of uh, a practice and a community. Like the community element was at the forefront of us building the app. It's built in a way where you feel like you can a, not only connect with uh, users one-on-one, -on -one, but you can also connect with the teacher one-on-one. -on -one. And, you know, you join a live class, there's probably hundreds of people there who have their webcams turned on. And all of a sudden you feel like you're in a yoga room or a meditation room. And so there is a, a lot of thoughtfulness in how we've designed it. And thank you for saying all those really beautiful things, by the way, I'm feeling very uncomfortable <laughs> with all the compliments, but it's, uh, it's really a, a byproduct of us caring so much about um, how it's presented to someone, um, but also doing our own research and, and essentially looking at mindfulness can be experienced these days in, in many ways. It's a, it's a quality. It's not mindfulness isn't a technique. It's a, it's a quality. It's a state that we can get to. And so certain musical frequencies can actually change our brainwave states to, to get to a, a similar or if not a close enough place to uh, meditation and presence. Um, we know for our mental health, strong community, strong social interaction is, is really important. And so we've built that into the app for that particular reason. And the consistency is the number one thing that helps people develop a habit and a practice. Uh, if you show up every day for five minutes, something will change in your brain. Uh, but then if you show up every single day and you know what you're going to get is going to be something really beneficial and good, and you know the, the voice or you know the background sounds or whatever it is, then it, it really supports someone's practice. So it's almost mirroring our own internal <laughs> Um, experience of meditation 
is the the external experience. So if you're consistent with yourself, I think that the world around you becomes a little bit more consistent. Mm-hmm. Yes. And even though it's just 10 minutes a day, I find that for me, a lot of times those 10 minutes, they're actually an invitation to go and sit in silence deeper mm-hmm. afterwards. But even if it's just the 10 minutes, for example, January 1st, I started the challenge at an airport in Istanbul, which is one of the busiest airports wow. in the world. And I posted a picture of from where I was meditating. There was a cup of espresso I just finished, a green juice I just finished or was drinking, and me like surrounded by bags and millions of people running around and loud announcements. And somebody messaged me and said, oh my gosh, I was told that you have to be in a quiet space with no pets and no voices or noises at all to meditate. I didn't know you could do this. And I just felt so grateful in that moment for that message because so many people are thought to think meditation is a certain pose or a certain look. You need to have a Lululemon outfit to be able to sit down to meditate, (laughs) whatever it is. But in reality, once we are consistent with the practice, we're able to meditate anywhere and connect to that state without even closing your eyes. Yeah. One of my teachers once said, if, um, if, if true freedom can be achieved in complete silence, um, then it's not true freedom. Um, and it's same with love. Like if, if I think the analogy, I'm going to butcher it, but the analogy was, um, if you feel most in love when everything is going well, then it's not true love. And I, and I, they're really stuck with me, you know, in terms of practice, because Mm. our practice practice is so little on the cushion and so much in the world. If we can be kind and generous and compassionate for 10 minutes a day, but be a jerk for the rest of it, then our practice isn't working. (laughs) You know, it's, it, it should really be the other way around. We should be able to sit in 10 minutes for 10 minutes cultivate these things and they should have an impact for the rest of our day, if not the rest of our life. And if mm. that's not happening, then then you need to look at your practice. You know, that's really, that's really where it begins. So um, I saw that photo of you in the airport and I was so impressed. I'm like, wow, like that's, that's real commitment. Uh, and I think, it, you know, w- when we dedicate ourselves to something like this, to meditation, if we look at it from the lens that we're not meditating to get good at meditating, when med- is meditating to get good at life, then that can really offer us a, a reframe and a, a longer commitment to what we're doing. Hmm. All right, that's going to be a quote. Um, <laughs> and another quote from you that I'm pulling up is the one from that January 1st practice that I did at the airport. It really hit me deep. And you said in your little Dharma talk before the meditation, which I love, you said peace is always available to us if we allow ourselves to connect with it. Mm. It's it's true, and and often what we don't realize is that um, we're already we're already all the things that we're craving. <laughs> we're already all the things that we're searching for. What and this is not to sound overly poetic or spiritual. Like we are already the things that we seek, but we don't recognize that or re- realize that because there are so many other things in the way of that recognition um you know when we talk about wanting to to love we talk about wanting to be courageous wanting to be all these things like we have been those things at some point in our life so that is a reminder to us that it's always been there <laughs> it's not out there it's, it's actually been there but we but we you know tend to add these layers of thoughts and feelings and emotions and memories and stories and narratives to it 
that really obstructs that recognition that it's always been there. And, and much of meditation is that it's un, it's t- it's taking off the the layers of onions, the the little peels that get in the way, and ultimately you recognize all the things you really wanted were here. And there's a level of contentment with your life. There's a level of contentment with the world around you. Um, it's a very peaceful peaceful place to be. And the reminder that I keep coming back to myself is I think it's easy to, once we get into the topics of meditation, to make the mind our enemy. Whenever I talk to my mom about meditation and how it could help her with her sleeping issues, she's like, I can't just sit there and not think. What are you talking about? I'm always planning something. I'm always thinking. I'm like, mom, it doesn't mean you can't think. You don't have to stop thinking. You just be with your thoughts. And I think it's so important, at least for me, to know that okay, the mind and the brain is not the enemy. It's that how can I witness it as something that is there to protect me and then love it and experience compassion and offer that compassion to my mind and then to myself and move on and allow it all, the heart and the mind to coexist harmoniously. And ideally, what I would like to envision is that can my mind be in service to the heart instead of the mind totally Mm -hmm. exiting the picture, I would become a monk, I guess. Which yeah, and, and to be honest, it's it's pretty hard to operate um, without the mind. So we're we're not getting rid of the mind. We're not trying to override the mind. We're we're just trying to understand the mind. And the best way to understand the mind is to sit down and to observe it, like you said. And uh, often, what happens at the beginning is that we realize we have so many thoughts. Like it's an endless stream of self-referential thoughts of what we want, what we don't want, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear. And it can feel so overwhelming that some people at that point are like, no, I can't do it. It's not for me. It doesn't work. But what we're seeing is that for perhaps the first time, we're seeing what our mind is actually like. And then when you see what your mind is like, everything begins to change. As you said, you can begin to recognize thoughts as they come, as they go, and not hook onto a thought and not follow a thought and not believe a story or a narrative. You can just observe it. And over time, what this actually does, it does the opposite of shutting down our mind. It actually refines our mind. It makes it so clear and pristine that our decision-making becomes a lot easier. Our emotion regulation becomes a lot easier Things don't linger in our body as longer because we can let things go a lot quicker. And so it actually has the, the opposite effect. And if you want to go down the, the path of neuroscience, there's a whole host of positive benefits that come from meditation, um, increasing the hippocampus, uh, shrinking the amygdala, which is our fear center, uh, prolonging the effects of our prefrontal cortex, which is you know what regulates emotion regulation and short-term memory. After the age of 21, that part of our brain actually shrinks. So, you know, mindfulness practice actually slows down the atrophy of the brain. So there's a whole host of, of scientific reasons why you should do it. But for me, that's that's just the icing on the cake. The, the real benefit is how can I live my life on my terms with more clarity and more ease? And if you know how to navigate your mind and befriend your mind, it makes life so much easier. You know, you're not fighting with yourself, essentially. Living life with more clarity and ease. And I would add peace. Yeah. Yes, 100%. And I know in my experience, when I commit to a daily practice, whether that's five minutes or 10 minutes, 
there's just a background of peace and presence and just like a little more space in how I react to things. Mm. My husband was being really loud a couple of minutes ago behind the door. I didn't find the compassion in me to be <laughs> kind to him in my mind. But most of the times there's just like a little more spaciousness, a little more ease. And practically yeah. it's to me, it kicks in within days of just sitting down daily because I think when we say yes to ourselves that way, we say yes to universe, to God, to mother nature, something just says, okay, you hear me. I hear you. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Here's some guidance. Let's see, you know, do you have the courage to go and implement yeah. this? And it becomes this beautiful conversation that is always guiding us. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. So I have two more questions before we wrap up. The first one is open has been very active in working with content creators for this challenge in particular, I know, and probably beyond it as well. And I'm curious if you have any reflections on the thinking behind it and how it's going. What are you learning from, you know, running this app and having content creators help you speak on behalf of it? I think the the time of um, the days where there was one person that was almost like a, a guru or like a figurehead and they inspired millions and millions of people, I think those days that I don't think they're dead I think like that's still really important but I believe that people are really inspired by each other these days you know it's it's great for someone like me to be on social media and teach and doing that but I'm sure most people think oh he's been doing this for years or maybe he was born like this or maybe you know it's easy for him to do it but when there are other people like you know content creators or, or just everyday people it's mainly everyday people actually that are posting a lot about us at the moment when you hear them post about it and be like, I've never been able to do it, but I just did this 10 minute practice and holy shit, like this is amazing. There's something really authentic in that. And I think when it comes to meditation and spirituality, you want it to feel accessible. You want it to feel like, oh, anyone can actually do this, which is the truth. It's not just, you know, Dalai Lama or me or someone else that, that can do it. Like anyone can, can really do it. And so um, a lot of it has been organic. A lot of it has been um, intentional. But the um, the lessons really here for me is that people just want to connect with with other people just like them. And so to hear someone that on the outside looks completely crazy, but all of a sudden they're like, yeah, but I'm really getting a lot of benefit from this, mm. um, I think is really amazing and, and, and powerful. And that accessibility is, is, a heart, is at the heart of what we do. Now, for those who are listening and have not joined the challenge yet, can they still join? Is January 5th today? Yes, absolutely. Um, we offer a challenge every single month. So the, the January challenge is, is, you know, it's great because it's the start of a new year. It can really set you up for um, a year of consistent, dedicated practice. But you can join anytime this month. And then next month also we'll have a different challenge um, that you can join yeah, just take your first class and it's free. So see how it goes. Yes. And just to clarify, it's 31 challenges in 31 days. So even if you're starting today, you can still catch up by doing a couple of challenges a day. If, if you wanted right. to tick all the boxes and be in that boat, it's not too late. Absolutely. And if you're really bold, you can do two practices a day and clean up on this January challenge. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Manoj, is there anything that 
I didn't ask you about that you feel called to share? Hmm. The final thing I'll add is that uh, you asked me a lot of questions about like the, the history and, and, you know, made me reflect on when I was going through those periods of, of feeling very lost and, and suffering and, and my health issues. It can feel like there is no way out. It can genuinely feel like that, but there's always a way out. And, and impermanence and the philosophy of impermanence is really useful if you can begin to really believe within yourself that you are not you are not the sum of what you are experiencing. You are not the anxiety, the stress, the depression, the suicide, the heartbreak. You are a human being and humanity experiences suffering and periodically you will experience things that are unpleasant in our life. But because of impermanence, you will also experience things that are really beautiful in life. And you'll experience things that are in between, that are kind of neutral. And if you can develop equanimity for when things are up, when things are down, when things are neutral, then that's the foundation for a really happy life. Mm, Cheers to that. You know, I really appreciate you sharing this bit and I appreciate you sharing your story. And one more thing I want to reflect to you is when I was getting ready for this interview, different things drop in and I don't always know why or what they mean. But the phrase that came in is meditation saved my life. It was like, tell Manoj meditation saved my life. And I was like, I don't think that's true for me. I don't think that's my statement. Mm -hmm. And then I checked in and it was like, I think it's not free. Maybe it's his. And maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is. And who knows, there's plenty of acts in our life. And and maybe the first act, meditation saved my life. Maybe the second act, it was something completely different. But uh, Mm. meditation is a a very powerful part. It's not the panacea. I'll I'll, I'll be very Mm -hmm. clear on that. I've been doing this for close to 16 years now. It's, It's not the thing that will fix everything or change everything but it can be the catalyst for that 100% Mm. because I, you know, as a parent, like I don't know how to get through or how I got through, um, you know, my, my daughter's adolescent years without having a, a meditation practice. And so it can really help other areas of your life. And it can be the, the gateway to healthy eating and more exercising and more social connection for sure. Mm. Yes. Yes, that was a very powerful context for it. I'm 100% in agreement with you, and I'm excited to see what the name of the next act is. But in the meantime, I'm just really grateful that you said yes to being a conduit for these teachings, to saying yes to the entrepreneurial path with all its opportunities for growth, and for just courageously being out there and sharing what's worked for you because it's making a difference for me. And I know for so many other people and for adding such a beautiful layer of beauty on top of it to add that level of pleasure and humanity to it. So thank you. I'm excited to see you on the app. I hope to catch you on one of your live classes, not just the pre-recorded ones and maybe even in person in LA or if you come to Austin. Oh, of course. I love Austin. And thanks everyone for listening. I hope to see you on the app as well. If you're not already on open, I am pretty sure that this conversation will move you to go and download the app and try it out for yourself. It is such a beautiful structure and space to experience your own wisdom that is already within you and have this invitation 
to connect daily to something deeper. I hope to find you on the app. You can hit me up by searching my name, Ksenia Brief, so that we can see what we are enjoying and maybe even meditate together at the same time, even when it's through time and space. I really believe that there's a compound effect that occurs when we gather in the space of meditation together. And like Manoj said, it's not the panacea, but it truly is a gateway. And I know in my experience, it is a gateway to healing, to remembering, to being connected to my intuition, to being guided in every area of my life, to being a little more kind. And I'm so grateful that there are people like Manoj who are taking leadership in this world of mindfulness to make it more accessible, to make it more fun, and to make it more beautiful to more and more people on the planet. Until next week, my friends. 